0: It is a joy right now to speak to one of the lightning rods of an international relations and in our study of our relationships worldwide, and that is John Bolton. Of course, Ambassador Bolton with so many tours of duty and always someone looking at the force and power of Russia. Give us a measurement on this Monday morning, John, of the force and power of Mr. Putin.
1: Well, he suffered uh, some severe setbacks so far in almost uh, six weeks of war in Ukraine. There's no doubt about it. The Russians obviously miscalculated the extent of Ukraine's resistance, which has been heroic. uh, And they miscalculated the capability of their own military, which has had one failure after another from the strategic level on down to simple logistics like food and gasoline. Now, all that said, they still control a considerable amount of Ukrainian territory. And it looks like uh, they're trying to get their act together, regroup, pursue more sensible objectives. Uh, uh, I'll have a piece up on 1945.com a little bit later this morning that says, I think, what uh, many are also saying, they're going to go after the Russophile areas of southern and eastern Ukraine. Right. And let's remember, when we, come, when we come to negotiations, which we're not in seriously yet, but when we come to it, the more land Russia holds, the harder it's going to be to get them to give it up.
0: John Bolton, I want your perspective as we talk to Admiral Stravitas as well about what has been underreported, in my opinion, which is the land grab along the Black Sea. What should be the American response to the territory taken down to Odessa?
1: Right. I I think this is a a central part of what Putin's objectives have been, and which, frankly, if he had focused on the south and the east uh, at the beginning of the war on February 24th, he might already have. Putin uh, wants the entire north coast of the Black Sea. I don't think there's any question about that. He wants Odessa, wants all that territory because he thinks it's strategically critical to Russia and because it will landlock Ukraine. So either things that have been coming through Odessa into Ukraine now will have to pass through Russian tolls and pay for it, or they're going to have to completely switch their uh, trading routes through Poland and Hungary and other uh, Eastern European countries, it will give right. Putin enormous strategic leverage over Ukraine. And as I say, why he didn't go after it first, I, I don't understand.
0: I want to turn, Ambassador Bolton, to the reality: you came out of Yale, you worked with David Keene, you worked with the Repu- No, no relation to me, I should point out. You, uh, you worked with with a Rush a Republican party that wasn't afraid to project. Then you worked for Donald Trump, who had his unique isolationist tendencies. Describe the new American isolationism. Describe the new GOP isolationism.
1: Well, I think uh, there's always been a strand of isolationism uh, in the Republican Party. I think it's actually broader in the Democratic Party. It takes a somewhat different form. They think the world's going to be saved by multilateral organizations like the United Nations. That's kind of delusional. But the Republican delusion is that none of this overseas, none of this in Ukraine uh, has anything to do with us. I, I think it has everything to do with us. Uh, our way of life depends on interests scattered all over the world. And the isolationists and the Republican Party don't see that, don't see anything worth defending. They'd find out when they began to disappear. But I am actually hopeful. I think the isolationist strand in the Republican Party has shrunk almost back to historic low levels. I think Biden's catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan last summer was a major factor there. And I think if you look at Republican views on uh, assistance to Ukraine and the current conflict, you can almost see those two events pushing the party back to its real Reaganite foundations uh, for the contemporary world.
2: So what would be an appropriate response from the United States or for Europe, for that matter, for alleged war crimes in Bucha and other cities in Ukraine?
1: Look, this is uh, there's there's little doubt based on the evidence we had of real barbarity on the part of the Russians. But look, it's nothing new for them. this They've done this in Syria. They did it in Chechnya. Uh, uh, and and so we shouldn't have been surprised by it. But I'll tell you something. None of this intimidates Vladimir Putin or the Siloviki, the men of power around him. These are the hard men of history. You can threaten them with war crimes, uh, prosecutions, all you want. It's not going to slow them down in the slightest. I think I've written on this extensively for over 20 years. Uh, These international criminal uh, court-type operations do not deter these things from happening, and they're very rarely able uh, to administer punishment. This this will have to come when Russians get control of their government again and take actions, if they desire to, against the people who committed the crimes in their name.
2: Okay, so if Vladimir Putin has proven time and again that he is not capable of being deterred, that deterrence tactics to this point have not worked— What will he respond to? Does use of force need to be on the table? And when the US and other countries, like the UK today, for example, saying that they don't want to escalate, they don't want to be escalatory, what would escalation actually look like? How far can they take it?
1: Well, I think Putin would have responded to adequate deterrence, but he hasn't seen any of it. You know, there's a lot of nattering by leaders of NATO countries about how united the alliance is, and so on. And yet we can't get the leader of the free world right. to agree to transfer of Polish MiGs uh, to Ukrainian Air Force. He said again yesterday it would be World War III, which it certainly would not. Uh, the West clearly failed. This is a shame that we will have to bear in not being able to deter well, Putin from starting that- this invasion.
0: John, that was very rude and undiplomatic of you, as you've been called uh, before. Let's drive the conversation forward to what to do now. Are you advocating that the Secretary of State needs to take the Bolton rude and undiplomatic and be more assertive, more aggressive? Or can we have a grace to our diplomacy as we force what America wants? Look,
1: uh, I think uh, we have we have been plenty graceful with our allies and uh, we're still not getting them to do enough. And we're not doing enough either. I think if you listen to some Europeans, the the British in particular, uh, that uh, they say we're constantly being dragged along by Europeans like themselves, urging us to do more or uh, pressure from both the House and the Senate, Democrat and Republican alike. Uh, the fact is, if Putin retains territory after this is over, he has won. And 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 his effort to reestablish Russian hegemony and maybe even sovereignty in the space of the former Soviet Union uh, has been well. Very pay- I,
0: I, I don't mean to cut you off, but this is too important, John, right now. And that is a new domino theory moving from Russia uh, west. Are you suggesting there could be a domino theory here if he takes part a bit some of Ukraine?
1: Yeah, he already has some after the 2014 invasion, to which we did not respond effectively. And he's obviously going to try and get more. Uh, He's got plenty of other targets beside NATO countries within the space of the former Soviet Union. But if you ask the Poles, if you ask Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, they are deeply afraid that uh, that they're very high on the (coughs) Russian target list. And an ineffective, indeed feckless Western response uh, will simply encourage Putin.
2: Okay, so that's looking west. What about to its other border with China, Mr. Bolton? What role do you think China is playing actively or inactively here?
1: Well, I, I wrote in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago, I think Russia and China have an entente here. Uh, it's not a full-up alliance, but it's an understanding. I think China has Russia's back in this conflict, and they'll expect Russia's back uh, when they launch their aggressive actions, whether it's against Taiwan or more in the South China Sea or elsewhere. Uh, along their periphery in the Indo Pacific. Right now, I think what the Chinese are doing is making their financial institutions available to sanctioned Russian banks and others to, in effect, launder right. that money back into the financial system. And I think although China already purchases significant amounts <clears throat> of Russian oil and gas, they'll be happy to right. purchase more. Uh, if if we had an effective embargo, which we don't. So th- these are the kinds of relationships. It doesn't require military assistance from China. Economic assistance uh, right. is very important. And you've got other major countries like India, which, uh, uh, according to press reports, quadrupled its uh, purchases of Russian right. oil in February.
0: John, I got to get this in. It's too important. In this conversation, you mentioned we should not worry of World War Three, and perhaps we should not worry of Mr. Putin and his nuclear abilities. How do we manage that? How do we develop a confidence that we will not find some form of world war? Well, I'm not saying we shouldn't worry about it. Of course,
1: we should. But right now, we failed to deter Putin, and he's deterring us. Uh, and I think if he can get what he wants for free without effective uh, allied response, uh, he's going to be encouraged to do more. I think providing the Polish MiGs is, is actually a pretty small piece here. We're now in a race Uh, of time with the Russians. We've got to get more military assistance to the Ukrainians. We should be doing a lot more. I think a lot of options we had are off the table. Biden gave them away in early December when he took American force uh, uh, away as an option. By the way, got absolutely nothing for that. So we're constrained by what's gone before us. But I think we should be absolutely clear here. Uh, If we allow Russia to get a major part of its objectives in Ukraine, we have suffered a significant defeat.
0: John Bolton, thank you so much. Uh, John thank Bolton you for there. having me. Always uh, thoughtful and controversial, to say at least. Lori Calvacina has had the courage to be in the markets. She's done it, small cap, large cap at RBC Capital Markets. But far more, John, Lori Calvicina has done sector analysis of what to do and just as much what not to do
3: Laurie joins us now tom thank you Laurie. let's start with that energy call the start of 21 get long overweight you like the sector you love the sector that one has popped big time through 21 through 22. then in the last week you've made a move can you walk us through it just piece by piece what led you to this point
4: Sure. So look, our job as a strategist is to really connect the macro and the micro. And so let's start with the macro. We had this sense that we really wanted to reduce some exposure to the value trade. And that's really for two reasons. Number one, the Fed, we have passed an important mile marker. When the Fed lifts off, we typically see value outperform ahead of that, but growth take back leadership afterwards. Secondly, economic forecasts are coming down. Tom Porcelli just took his number to two and a half percent, which is trend and consensus is looking for 2.3 percent next year. And we typically see value outperform at a Hot or above-trend economy, but growth outperforms when the economy is running cool. So we think markets are really ready to start shifting back to growth. And in fact, in mid-March, we started to see growth outperform value. So that's the macro. And when we thought about how we wanted to reduce that value exposure, we turned to our analyst survey, which is something that we do once a quarter and just completed last week. Back in December when we did this survey, my energy team, which had been bullish and highly bullish throughout all of 2021, was number one in terms of their performance assessments over the next six to 12 months. In the survey we just completed, they fell to number four. Now I'm not saying they're bearish, but their enthusiasm clearly fell a notch. And we had a sense that between that and financials, energy was really the better place to reduce that value exposure just given those bottom-up inputs from our analysts.
3: So Laurie, help us understand also then the next logical question in this sequence of questions that we'll have with you this morning. Why maintain the overweight on financials given the growth slowed down that you seem to be talking about?
4: So I think we're, you know, when we're thinking about that economic forecast, we're making the assumption that we're heading for a below trend type economic backdrop, but not a recession. And I do leave that call to Tom Porcelli, and he will tell you that the risks have grown, but he hasn't really pulled into, been pulled into that yet as his base case. I do think financials have been suffering from that growing sense of recession fears. And I think as the market really sort of transitions and sort of settles into this idea that we're just going to hit growth significantly but not really enter a recession, you could actually see some relief on the financial side. Also, <laughs> frankly, John, I think that heading into this reporting season, the sentiment on financials has been pretty dour. That's the complete opposite of what we saw ahead of the last reporting season when they had really been flying and got mm-hmm. you know kind of pulled back down. I think we have a better setup going into this reporting season just from a sentiment perspective.
0: Lori, the zeitgeist is that earnings grow and then they don't, that the market goes up and then it doesn't, that nominal GDP is pretty good and then it's not. How do you determine that tip point when earnings turn low single digit or dare I say negative?
4: So it's a great question, Tom, and I will tell you that as a forecaster and someone who builds a lot of back tests and regressions, earnings have simply gotten much harder to forecast. And there are models that we've built, inputs that we've looked at over time, um, things like unit labor costs, for example which have been brilliant at forecasting earnings in the past, um, but haven't worked as well when we look over the past few years. And I'm thinking specifically about margins. And I think the reason for that, and you know, I'm a transcript junkie, we really go through and just you know read everything we can in S&P 500 reporting season each quarter. And what we've really seen are two things is number one, companies have just gotten much, much better at combating margin pressures. And so new efficiencies, software, new tools, new recruiting strategies, those are all kind of throwing a monkey wrench in the models for people like me. Secondly, when you think about the market from kind of a top-down perspective, technology has been just a structural margin winner over time, and it now accounts for a disproportionate share of earnings. Much, much uh, bigger impact now than it has in the past, and so that's also throwing some of those backward models off. And I'll tell you, I think the buy side has really ratcheted down their expectations for earnings coming into this reporting season. So we're not expecting things to be fantastic, but we do think there's already a lot of
3: baked it. Laurie, awesome. As always, you know, we love catching up with you. Laurie Cavacina of RBC Capital Markets, just on some of the changing calls around the sector preferences over at RBC and how they line up with the economics team as well. Without further ado... Andrew
0: Hallenhorst, the most studied economist in America in the last number of days. He's chief U.S. economist at Citigroup. Andrew, John Farrell tore you to shreds the day you put out your note looking for a set of higher notes. I'm glad to see you survived. Andrew, I want to talk about the underlying theory at UCLA that you learned on all this. If we get the persistency of a non-measured rate rise, what are the responsivenesses within the system you're most focused on? Those Elasticities are going to be absolutely original given the Hollenhorst move. Which ones matter?
5: Yeah, thanks very much, Tom, for having me. It's a great question. How the economy responds as you start to see interest rates moving higher. Um, and you know, to your point, I think when people first saw our call for 50 basis point hikes at the next four meetings, it looked aggressive to some people. But if you think about the kind of underlying theory, like you were mentioning, this is a... Fed that has a neutral rate, they think around 2.5% in a world of 2% inflation. Well, we're living in a world of 6, 7, 8, almost 9% inflation, depending on how you calculate it. So the idea that Fed officials would want to pretty expeditiously, to use their term, get to a number like 2%, right. a little bit over <clears throat> 2%, that, that's not that aggressive of a call.
0: Okay, well, this is important. Let's chop it down from ISLM and all the other theories, blah, 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 down to the core economic function. If we get a Holenhorst move, which partial def- differential moves the most? Consumption or business investment, or is it gonna be expressed in the trade balance? Which one matters? Tom, I would watch the
5: housing market here. I think that's really the important sector to watch. In general, that's where interest rates have a very direct effect on what's going on in the economy. And if you look at that 30-year fixed rate, nominal mortgage rate, that's moved up from around 3% to above 4.5% now. So we've had a significant move in mortgage rates. The question you ask as an economist is, is 4.5% mortgage rate really that high in a world where you're seeing inflation that's much higher? Does the Fed need to go even further yeah. than that? Um, but I think that is kind of the, the first sign that we're getting you know, some traction from what the Fed is doing feeding through to broader financial conditions, which should feed through in, in some way to the housing market. It's just, it's not clear right. that that's gonna be enough to pull off the housing market. And
0: John, that really that really rings true here as Kaylee looks at 7,000 square feet downtown. I mean, the mortgage rate adjustment's been huge.
3: Honestly, house prices, Tom, in this country, in the UK for that matter, are obscene at the moment they're nuts they're I, absolutely I, I, incredible yes. they yeah, are nuts I, I you're agree. right i'm going to use that word they are nuts and andrew i wasn't tough on you at all a couple of weeks ago <laughs> and you know that let's talk about the economic data andrew you've got faith in this economy you've got faith in this economy and for that reason to restrain this economy you think rates have to go a whole lot higher there was one little crack in that on friday and you and the team picked up on it the ism can you walk us through what's been happening and why that may be just a little bit of a blinking flashing light on your dashboard
0: Yeah,
5: I think you really have to be watching all the signals here because, to to your point, John, I mean, we have very strong demand, demand that is exceeding supply. The issue when demand exceeds supply is that even as demand begins to cool, you might not see activity slow that much. You would really see prices slow down because, well, you were constrained by supply at the beginning of the day in any case. Um, So we're watching all these indicators, um, something like an ISM slowing down. Um, That that would be raising our level of concern somewhat. You know, a lot of people looking at the yield curve. That's another signal that I think means we should be cognizant of the fact that the economy may slow down Um, and and the Fed may need to slow the the economy down significantly to get inflation down. So there's a lot of reasons to be thinking about scenarios where the economy slows down. But what I would go back to is the other number on Friday, which was the jobs report. Mm. And we're running on average above 500,000 new jobs a month. You have wage inflation above 5% annualized. Um, You put those numbers together, you have nominal incomes that are running above 10% year on year. And I think that kind of nominal income growth, we're probably going to see a lot of spending power behind that.
2: But in the face of higher oil prices, really higher prices across the board, Andrew, how long can the American consumer go before demand destruction really starts to kick in?
5: Yeah, it's a great question. And I I think we are seeing that to some extent. Um, We were talking about housing before. Um, Would demand for housing be even stronger if house prices were not as high as they are? That's definitely the case. So a combination of higher prices and higher mortgage rates in the housing market. Um, And then more broadly for consumption, like you're talking about, we have higher oil prices higher gasoline prices at the pump. That that really does hurt consumers on a day-to-day basis. Um, again, though, you're just coming at that from so much nominal income power, you know, hitting that increase in prices that I don't think that will be enough so far. Now we're watching the, you know, if you watch the consumer sentiment numbers, for instance, there you do see some of those numbers dipping because people are concerned about prices that are moving higher as they should be. Um, But so far, it still looks like an economy that was running well above 2% potential growth probably still running above 2% potential growth. But you know, kind of like you were discussing earlier, slowing down closer to that 2% number as we go through the year.
2: Andrew, to bring it back to monetary policy, how does the balance sheet factor into your assumptions of potentially 200 basis points of move over four meetings? If the balance sheet is introduced as a factor in May, does what influence does that have?
5: Great question. So economists like myself spending a lot of time right now guessing at what these interest rate increases will look like, Fed officials spending a lot of time talking about the potential path of interest rate increases. But really, we should probably all be a bit more focused on the balance sheet. That's an incredibly important tool that the Fed has when we talk about a flat yield curve, two-year yields being pretty high and 10-year yields staying relatively low. Well, the Fed is a very large owner of long-term treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. That's going to put downward pressure on long-term yields. So I think the Fed is going to start this on somewhat of an autopilot, where there are caps on the amount of securities that are reinvested each month. That's going to bring the balance sheet down slowly. Um, But it's something to watch, because if the Fed needs another lever to pull on to fight inflation that's running too high, well, the balance sheet is there as a lever. Could the Fed at some point think about sales? Could they think about being more aggressive with the balance sheet? I think all those things are on the table. We're just not really focused on them right now.
3: Andrew, a fascinating call. We appreciate your time, as always, buddy, to catch up and break it down for us. Andrew Hollenhorst there of City.
0: This is one Jay Kramer out on Twitter this morning. Elon Musk, could you please create an algorithm for Twitter to get rid of the death threats and the like? Also, how about a two-track... One with real names that is paid for, and one that is ad-supported, where people can hide behind anonymous names and dump on Doug 24. Right. <laughs> right, I retweeted
6: that. Uh, you retweeted, I retweeted that. Jim's, Jim's um,
0: yeah,
6: <clears throat> a wise comment because there's so much vitriol. It's like it's a cesspool. It's you know I go on and off because yeah, people are so filled with hate, and yeah, I get it um, too, but not like especially, you. Especially, especially, you know. A lot of these people are, you know, reside in the cheap seats, and they're shrouded by anonymity. Yeah. And they've never been on the playing field, and they say stuff that they wouldn't say to your face.
0: You've been cautious here. What do you do with Twitter now that Mr. Musk owns 9.x percent, stock up, what, Paul, 25%? Yeah. What do you do, Doug?
6: I probably traded Twitter. uh, Those people on real money pro on the street know over 20 times over the last seven years. Starting at fourteen ninety five, I actually was not long going into this, but I shorted stock at forty nine sixty as I tweeted out and covered about five percent lower this morning. So I'm flat to stock. Um, look, mm-hmm. Musk is a genius. The irony is that the SEC doesn't allow him to tweet. <laughs> but he can own the company unless his counsel at at at, at, at Tesla allows him. To, you know, goes over what he's going to tweet. So it's filled with irony. Um he filed a 13G, not a 13D, so he's passive. So I think it's an overreaction in my view.
5: All right, Doug. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just looking around here. I just came back from a nice few days off in California. Things are great out there. Sunshine, 6 dollars 5 a gallon for gas. But I've got an economy that's slowing. I've got interest rates that are going higher. I've got inflation. My huevos Rancheros at Katie's Place in Carmel this yesterday cost me $21. <laughs> um, right. What do I do in this market?
6: Well, I mentioned to to Tom and and apropos to answering your question, Paul, that I wanted to rip up the script, okay, and please, and basically link something that I learned in my first statistics class at Wharton uh, with Jamie D- Dimon's comment, because I think yep, it yep. it will serve to answer your question. The term I learned was uh, Gaussian distribution or normal distribution uh, before everyone's eyes glaze over. Most know Gaussian by a different name and it's a familiar name. It's a bell shaped curve, which is a probability distribution function used in statistical analysis. Now most view market outcomes these days as a bell shaped curve. The average strategist comes in and says, Well, Tom and Paul, the market S and P is gonna earn three hundred twenty five dollars plus or minus, apply the twenty one multiple, where maybe two or three uh P E numbers higher than normal, but interest rates are low, so the stocks are not expensive expensive relative to interest rates. I think that's linear thinking. Um, uh, You know, in a normal distribution, a normal world, 98% of the outcomes are within three standard deviations of the mean, and two-thirds are within one standard deviation. That's how the majority of investors are thinking today. I strongly disagree what I believe to be the normal distribution consensus. I see it much differently. I don't see a Gaussian or normal curve. I see what I call a Cassian distribution and an abnormal distribution, after all, some call me abnormal on Twitter. Um, But an abnormal distribution considers that there's a wide range of tail outcomes uh, that have a higher probability than at any time in the last few decades. In other words, to me, the markets, Paul, are underpricing risk in the rally over the last half of March. Right. It looks like a bear market rally. And let's consider what Jamie Dimon says. I've, I have said online, on the show, and offline to John, you, um, and Tom, that um, my concern is chiefly that there's abundance of uncertainties and the varied probabilities of outcomes that exist today. De- Jamie Dimon said this morning, he warned that the war in Ukraine – would collide with rising inflation uh, to slow the pandemic recovery and alter global alliances for decades to come. But what he wrote next is far more important. He wrote, they, re- referencing Ukraine and inflation, present completely different circumstances than what we've experienced in the past. And their confluence may dramatically increase the risks ahead. While it is possible and hopeful that all these events will have peaceful resolutions, we should prepare for the pet Negative outcomes. And this is why I view the world the stock market, the S and P as overvalued. Never before have we had the possibility of these outlier right. unexpected outcomes which are happening with greater frequency. Okay. So twenty one times PE right. ratio, twenty one times, is really quite expensive.
0: Well, Doug, what's important here is we don't know where the Baltimore Orioles are in the bell curve, but it's not a good sight to see. uh, I know where the Yankees are, and I don't
6: even want to discuss it anymore. (laughs) I know.
0: It's part of your terms for coming out. We talked to your people and said you wouldn't talk about it. Doug, what's so important within this analysis is corporations adapt. With your analysis, do you go to, you know, forget about trading like cash. Do you go to cash, or are there places to hide, given your caution?
6: Well, I have a very long list of shorts. <laughs> uh, a, a give us some names. A lot of companies you haven't heard of, or whether fraud exists or the company's outlook.
0: Give us some names.
6: Uh, I'm not going to get into the details, but I'll briefly give you some names. Carvana, Krispy Kreme, you know, Robin Hood. Whoa, whoa, whoa,
0: whoa, whoa, stop ratings. there. Krispy Kreme. Krispy Kreme?
6: Awful business model. It's going to go the way the first Krispy Kreme did, kaput. Berkeley Lights, Lightspeed. One of my favorites is Digital World Acquisition, which is down $9 this morning. And that's, of course, Donald Trump's uh, Truth Social, which is having serious problems. There's no audience. Uh, uh, having people download. There's a waiting list of over a million names. I've tried to get on it, not because I'm interested <laughs> in, in the propaganda, but uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how the site is working, how effectively it is working. In fact, over the weekend, the two people that uh, lead the uh, yeah. technology and development right. uh, resign from the company, okay. and um, yeah. they, they're going to have problems. You know, the other thing is, in theory, um, Truth Social provides um, uh, a platform versus Twitter. But I think people from the right and the left right. like Twitter because they could kill each other with so much vitriol and hate. Oh, listen and I don't you. think it is as compelling hey. if you have a site hey. with Only um, uh, right-leaning tweeters or contributors. Doug,
0: I'm out of time. i got 45 (laughs) seconds. Would you explain the price of Florida real estate?
6: Oh, my God. I've been talking about this all weekend. (laughs) Have you been spying on my conversation? Of course I I have. have. If I told you what I paid for my house on Seabreeze Avenue in Palm Beach in 1999 and was offered Friday night by someone who walks, not a realtor, (laughs) Someone who wants to pay me cash just walked up and knocked on my door. I happened to be home. My dog my two dachshunds, um Ollie and Daisy, are barking, yeah. um, and I, I, I was, I was, in, I was stunned. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, well, I'm,
6: we'll not it. I'm not selling it. I'm because it's in a residence. <laughs> trust <with> my kids.
0: <laughs> Good, Doug Kess, thank you so much. Knocking on his door down in Florida with Seabreeze uh, Partners as well.